0: Pitch Deck Asia, your story, your words. Welcome back. This is season two of Pitch Deck Asia, the show that brings you the stories of startups from idea to putting a dent in the universe. It's a real journey. So I'm delighted to have a couple of startup entrepreneurs with us today who really have been on a journey. Welcome back to the show. We have Stephen Tracy and Gerald Ang from Milieu. It's been a while since we saw you last, gentlemen. Great to have you back.
1: Yeah, great to be back. Really great to be back
2: in different circumstances, but great to be back. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And keeping it real as well there, like we are, this is the work from home lockdown edition, but as we do, we're entrepreneurs. So, you know, we are agile. We do whatever it takes. Retrace a little bit from the journey when we first met. Actually, we first met, I think, was that an event late 2018? And I think, Stephen, you just joined then. Gerald, yeah, you've been was, going for about a year, right?
1: It was MRMW when we yeah. met in person. Um, it was a, a, a peer uh, who was also on the show, a guy named right. Pavel who works for uh, another startup, who told me about you. But yeah, the first time we met was at uh, MRMW. That's right. It was just you two at the, back then, wasn't it? You two on a booth. That was yeah, late we, two, we were, 2018. We were like
2: hassling, like crazy then. Yeah, Yeah. we're still hustling like crazy now
0: still hustling like crazy but you've grown a little bit since then I mean
2: how many people are you now at milieu yeah so we are 39 now so I think the last time we talked we were at about 12 people and since then we closed the funding round and now we're at 39 people across 6 markets so kind of like a big growth in our company, but at the same time, also navigating the challenges when it comes to COVID-19.
0: Absolutely. We're going to to talk a bit about that today as well. So Gerald, you started the business. It was just yourself at the beginning, right? Is that correct?
2: Yeah, it started from me actually kind of like I I was working in Thailand for about eight years and I noticed a gap in the market research industry. So I came back to Singapore. I attended a three-month coding boot camp. Spent a year kind of designing the product from scratch, kind of reconciling my knowledge re- revolving around market research um, as well as technology. And we kind of like launched our product about two years ago. And so far we have grown quite healthily. Mm-hmm. Um, we have grown from like two markets to about six markets so far.
0: Yeah, I-, I want to know what that was like growing from 12 to 39, let alone one to 39 people. That's been a bit of a crazy ride, hasn't it? I mean, that's never yeah. an easy transition as well. So, you know, you're always going to make a lot of mistakes along the way, getting that right and learning and also relearning what it takes to grow that kind of business. So I guess we're going to go and talk a little bit about that today. But, you know, firstly, like welcome back to part two. It's great to see you here, Thank smiling you. as well, as you say, in different circumstances. How, how has it been industry-wise? Maybe we can just set the, the scene market research in the lockdown you know that to me is obviously tough because you've got a lot of consumer brands potentially who may be just being a little bit cautious about their spending their budgets their advertising campaigns and that obviously may affect market research as well but you guys are digital first as well so how has it been for you you know you must have had both wins and losses on both sides there
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of headwinds in the industry, definitely, given kind of like how how COVID-19 has panned out. But when it comes to the overall industry, which is market research, I think we can kind of like um, define the industry in terms of traditional methodologies. For example, face-to-face research, focus groups, as well as in-depth interviews. And then another part of the industry is really online research, where you connect with people remotely. And I think when it comes to the industry right now, with all the lockdowns across all the different countries in Southeast Asia, face-to-face research, focus groups and all this um, is increasingly non-viable because it's just simply impossible to get people in the same room with all the social distancing kind of like guidelines in place. So in a sense, kind of like online research has really been a opportunity area for us because instead of really kind of physically interacting with people, we give organizations the ability to interact with people uh, remotely via kind of like technology as well as kind of um, online surveys and things like that. So there's definitely opportunities for us because of the space, the space we play in, which is online research. But at the same time, we are also cognizant that as a whole, across most of the markets, economy is, has, is, is going through a downturn. Right. So there are some companies out there that are actually growing in terms of their business because they cater to the new normal, which is how social distancing has actually kind of impacted the economy and lifestyles. Um, but there are a wide range of companies that are also very much impacted by this because they are FMB retail companies. And I think our strategy right now is really to kind of cater to those companies that are growing at this point of time because of digital transformation, but also really helping companies that are suffering the brunt of the effect of COVID-19 when it comes to the effect of uh, lockdowns and things like that. So, so we are kind of like balancing in terms of really helping companies that are doing well right now, but also kind of like helping companies that are suffering right now um, to help them survive through this period. And we, we are cognizant that it's not just really just helping companies that are doing well right now, but also really making sure that we generate goodwill and uh, good relationship with companies that are going through a difficult time and helping them to make better decisions in terms of how they grow their business or survive through this difficult period at the same time. So it's been pretty exciting. It's been pretty tough, but um, I think it's kind of a good test of our company and the team as a whole in terms of how we can actually adapt to how situations have changed so far.
0: I'm going to open this up to both of you in a minute and we're going to have a look at some of your slides on the pitch deck. Thanks for setting the scene on that, Gerald. Just to Reiterate. There's actually a slide. I think you shared on the pitch deck with us like, since we last met. Maybe we can just flash that one up because you've got all that in numbers just to put this into context. I think it's slide 15 that we can just scroll down to. We have a look at that one. And if you're listening, by the way, and you listen to the podcast version of this, maybe we can explain some of the numbers here. A lot has happened since we were last on the show. <laughs> so, <laughs> thanks for giving us an update. You closed quite a big round I think not long after, or, or it was just about the time you were going through the process when you were back on the show. Yeah, we saw you in
1: March, and the right. round closed around November. So it's a, a little bit after. Not too far, okay, not so too
0: November 2019. Or you, oh, you mean 2018 you closed the round, and then in March? 20, 20, in, uh,
1: 2019.
0: 2019. Okay, gotcha. So you closed a, a reasonable round, and you, since then you've had quite solid revenue growth, 60-plus clients acquired. Just... Let me ask you, obviously, some of the messages are coming out now, Gerald, but what do you think the wins are in terms for both of you when you're talking to clients? What are they saying? What are they, how are you picking up business at the moment? Is it because there's a disillusionment with the existing industry or there's certain messages or is there an urgency now about market research that there wasn't before? How are you winning business?
2: Yeah, so I think the main thing right now is that I think in the past decade, we have seen that consumer behavior is changing so much faster with digital prof- proliferation, with um, kind of like news actually impacting consumer opinions much faster than it did before. Um, and I think the need for speed, right? The need for a quick turnaround and the need for actually making decisions faster than you did before um, is emerging as a kind of like a, a need for organizations so far when it comes to uh, making decisions in terms of ensuring the survivability as of the growth of their business. Um, And I think COVID-19 has really kind of manifested that even more, right? So yesterday is old news. Um, People are trying to grasp news of today and people are trying to predict what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, And I think that existing market research solutions in the market Um, typically don't really provide that speed and turnaround when it comes to providing insights in time um, to make decisions in an environment and a situation where things are changing so fast. And I think where we are winning in is um, really providing a seamless solution for clients um, where they can get results uh, in a timely fashion. So not really just about speed, but about timeliness in terms of like making decisions. And with a combination of technology User-centric design, as well as um, really thinking about um, what clients need and working backwards in terms of how we design our technology, um, we have provided with cl- provided clients with a unique solution um, in terms of speed as well as usability of our platform um, that's unprecedented in the market. Um, and that's where we are winning in terms of um, providing solutions in the market that other companies are not offering at this point of time. Um, so one example I can give you is COVID nineteen, right? So COVID nineteen changes so fast um, in the industry so fast. So um, one news can come out and things have things will change so much in terms of consumer opinions and their tendency to spend um, and their tendency to spend on big ticket items. Um, and if you rely on the old gut of market research, um, you simply go, don't get information in time to really make decisions that help you to actually increase your business performance during these difficult times. Well, let me ask you, because
0: you have both worked in that world. If I was to commission a study about consumer behavior in COVID-19 and I was getting the results today in the old world
2: of market research, when would I have commissioned that study? So you will have commissioned the study at a point of time where you have a business question that you want answered and you will probably get the data back two to three weeks at the minimum after you have this business question. And by that time, it's really too late. I think everyone understands how things move so fast these days. So by that time, it's really too late. What MILU really brings to the market is providing you with insights within 24 hours after something happens and that really kind of like activates more use cases when it comes to market research in the industry that's very relevant to kind of like the industry dynamics and landscape right now.
1: I think one thing we've noticed too is that a lot of the briefs we've gotten after the circuit breaker started in Singapore and post kind of lockdown, post COVID-19 is number one, the briefs are, there, there are certain types of projects that are kind of lower value like brand trackers, for example, are a a very common type of research investment that are informative, but they kind of provide weather reporting and they're not necessarily giving you hard hitting insights. A lot of those things have been affected. And this is from even conversations with our colleagues and even some of our competitors that those type of kind of lower value, but big ticket investments like a brand tracker have disappeared almost overnight. The brands have basically said, we, we we can't invest in these things, but in place of those, they're doing smaller nimble studies and there's a sense of urgency, you know, again, in pre-COVID people would probably spend a week or two to kind of like flesh out and figure out what the, like the questions they want to ask. And they're really trying to get that done a lot faster now because they want to measure what post-COVID behavior looks like whether they're like a snacking brand or whether they're a streaming service. So there's uh, those two things I've noticed on the top of uh, Gerald's points is that there's definitely the sense of urgency that's driving faster turnaround. And those low, lower value investments have just gone. Everyone wants to collect insights through a platform like ours that inform like a decision like immediately that they can right, then right. activate tomorrow.
0: You talk about weather reporting. As an example, I mean, as an analogy, is that sort of, those are the typical low value brand trackers that you're talking about, and those are being axed right now because they're not providing actionable insights. Is that my understanding?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, weather reporting has always been kind of the bread and butter of market research, right? You kind of like want to understand the market after the fact. And increasingly, because of how consumer behaviors have changed so fast these days, weather reporting doesn't really cut it anymore because um, you weather report something that happened a few weeks back, um, but the weather has changed. And I think what we have done is really provide a solution for people to make tactical decision, decisions around how they want to kind of evolve their business rather than just report business performance. And I think that's where we have been winning a lot in terms of um, where we have growing in terms of our business so far.
1: <laughs> one, one, one example of like what a brand tracker usually looks like, like these are types of, these, this is a research use case that's been around for a long time. And a lot of the time, there are different solutions in the market, but a lot of brand trackers involve collecting data at one, one or maybe two times of the year. And then you report on it as an annual brand track when it's not your annual, it's like your October brand tracker. Um, and then they often result in a hundred PowerPoint slide deck that goes to the CEO to report on like NPS scores. And these are huge, these are often like big ticket studies because they involve like really big sample sizes. And so those things like Gerald said, are, they're just not viable because they take too long. They don't deliver enough actionable insight. They just kind of give you like a general diagnostic of where your brand is.
0: Mm. That's quite an old school though, we're moving out of that world and it's not just also I think like you're saying the weather reporting, but it's also the depth of insights that you're gathering and can we have a look at the, the COVID canvas that you were working with? You, Stephen? you shared that with us before the yes. show, that was pretty interesting, I was looking through this with the team and we were actually looking through this, regardless of the fact you guys were coming on the show, we were looking through this and just chatting about it within the team internally. And thinking, wow, that was really interesting. Because for us, even though we weren't approaching it from the angle of a client commissioning research, we were just curious about what were people thinking in Singapore about COVID? So if we can scroll to the top, maybe, Stephen, you can give us an overview of what this is. And bear in mind, yeah. some people are actually listening or will be listening to this. So please be descriptive.
1: Sure. So what you're actually looking at is we we have two products on our platform. One is called Portraits, which is pre-collected data. We actually run our own surveys, our profiling surveys, and we put them into a platform that you can just access anytime and get data. And then we have another product called Studies, which is where you want to launch a new study, like an ad test or something like that. This is um, actually a free version of our Portraits platform that is, is limited to some COVID-19 related uh, attitude and behavioral data. So um, our main portraits product is actually behind a paywall. So our clients subscribe to it and they get access to about a thousand data points. So demographics, attitudes, sector-based behaviors, like which banks do people use? Um, This is again, a version of that that's free and publicly available. We launched this because uh, first of all, the data that's contained in this is uh, all data that's related to consumer sentiments and behaviors Um, in a post COVID-19 world. So at the top, you've got things like their concern levels. And if you click into any one of these, you get the more details. So you can click in and you can see the exact question text. You can see the type of question that was asked and all the options in the the study. So you get things like concern levels, um, concern areas. So in the question you're looking at right now, you see like... What are they most worried about? Their loved ones would get the virus as the top rank? Uh,
0: we just stay with that one there, just as an example. So for those that don't see the answers in front of them, immediately, straight away, looking at this, there's a takeaway insight there that people are more concerned about the people around them than themselves, right? Because if you look at the, the bottom answer that people are concerned about with COVID-19 is impact on my mental health. Yeah. Whereas the top one is like, my loved ones will catch the virus or my household, right?
1: And look at the, I will catch the virus is fourth on the list, which is almost almost 20 points lower. Well, so I think that's really, I thought that was really interesting because- I I didn't expect that either. I didn't expect it to be so kind of uh, about their community as opposed to about Mm. themselves.
2: So one thing that we we really learned from this study in Singapore is that a lot of the concern when it comes to COVID-19 is um, not really intrinsic, whether it's dependent on um, the effect it has to yourself, but the effect it has to kind of your your loved ones and all Mm. this. And really kind of like the age group or the demographic that's really kind of like concerned about COVID-19 is basically the age group kind of above 30 years old, all the way under 45 years old. And the reason for that is because they have kids, they have elderly dependents, and they have people that They fear for and worry for. So it's pretty heartening actually to really see these results because people are not really thinking about this from an intrinsic point of view, but thinking about it from kind of an extrinsic point of view about how this the virus is going to affect uh, the people around them. Um, but this is really different across markets. So the Singapore dashboard is really the first dashboard we're creating. Mm. But over the course of the next two to three weeks, we will be standing up our dashboards across Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, as well as Philippines, Vietnam, and those kind of markets. And I actually got kind of a quick glimpse of the data that we see from Malaysia um, yesterday when our tech team actually standard up the dashboard. And Malaysia really went through kind of like, two months of um, MCO or lockdown. And while Singapore is really very much worried about um, contracting the disease and everything, Malaysia has really evolved into really being more concerned about um, their economic outlook um, as well as the outlook of their livelihood. So what we really want to do with this dashboard is to really track how the different markets are evolving when it comes to recovery, in terms of COVID-19 as well, um, because there are different phases that different countries go to and Singapore is simply in a different phase um, than countries like like Malaysia at this point of time.
0: it's yeah. really insightful. I'm thinking about how that would be used as a marketer, for example, going back to the earlier points, really, this would help inform me what the key talking points and meta messages I need to use and reinforce, you know, yeah. rather than, for example, let's say you were running a public health campaign It seems like the key meta message is less about me and the impact on me and my health and more about my impact on people around me and, you know, my responsibility to them. And then there's this second part, Gerald, you're talking about, for example, like the staging as well. Now, how that has shifted in a matter of weeks, really, that the focus now is, okay, right, the real problem now is the economy. That's going to be the longer term macro issue that we're dealing with. Yeah. And once we've got through the fear factor of, you know, our sort of, you know, on that sort of Maslow's triangle, once we've got this sort of fear factor of our health out the way, now it's like, you know, how am I going to feed my family? How am I going to keep the show on the road? And that now seems to be an ascending or a growing trend in people's concerns as well. So it's almost like, you know, a horizontal and a vertical. Um, analysis of people's opinions here, which goes beyond simply saying, you know, as you would see in a very, very sort of one dimensional research approach, just asking people very basic questions. So, I mean, i put it to you as well. What else have you learned from this study or any other kind of insights you were surprised by? Because you're getting sort of very different responses from different markets as well. Was there anything that sort of challenged you as well in your assumptions?
1: Well, we—if um, you go through the dashboard, there's also a section that shows where um, buying behaviors have changed by different sectors, where they purchase more, where they purchase less. Um, and there was a couple of interesting things there because the ones that we flash that up and let's get that on the screen. Yeah, I think the ones that we, we've all been kind of aware of is like delivery services are on the rise, like the deliveries and grabs, and the travel industry is getting hit hard. One thing we've also noticed just aside from this data is as a result of the clients we work with is that there's been this lag in terms of who got hit. The travel industry and airline industries got hit immediately and they're in dire pain. And then uh, there were other industries where there was this kind of delay and it's kind of catching up with them. Um, And so some of this data was really interesting. Just seeing like the kind of breakdown on like things like fashion products and sports equipment. So if you click into some of those, like the uh, general... Um, so, uh, you see that like, uh, in some, you see a lot of movement across this data. I think the sports equipment one, uh, there might've been slightly more like people spending a bit more. I, I think we've seen overall the spending behaviors. You see some sectors where people might be just be, uh, going through some retail therapy and kind of ordering a lot of stuff online and buying stuff. Yeah. That Those would was,
0: be the guys ordering the, the push up bars for the yeah, house. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so this was the, <laughs> the one, work like, from home guys.
1: Like the fashion was only 8% spent more. And what you're seeing on this is like for sports equipment, 27% yeah. is spent more. And so just these things I didn't think of beforehand, that's just like, oh, wow, that's uh, that's really interesting.
0: In the traditional uh, sense, where that would be commissioned as research, is the, is the main differentiator here, is, is, is it the sort of the depth of research you're going into or is it the timeliness that's really important that informs the, the quality yeah. of the results?
2: So one thing that we're going to do eventually is, um, this is the first launch of our dashboard. But every two weeks, we're going to repeat these questions all over again. And what we really want to do here is to track the recovery of all the different markets in terms of the stage of where the different markets are at this point of time. So eventually, this dashboard is not going to just kind of like contain static data or point-in-time data. But it's also going to give you the ability to actually compare how sentiments have changed from now to compared to like two weeks ago. So what we really want to do is to really kind of help people to illuminate how sentiments have changed, when is the right time to make marketing decisions, But beyond just really businesses that really focus on kind of sales and all this kind of things, the reason why we go from a very top-down approach by looking at concerns levels as well is because we want to also empower not only just brands as well as companies that really want to improve their business performance, but also government agencies or NGOs when it comes to really understanding what are the key concerns of people and how to make decisions to address these key concerns. So this dashboard is not really just catered to consumer-facing organizations, but it's also catered to policymakers right, um, that we'll need this data to really understand what phase um, each country is in when it comes to COVID-19. So I think the exciting part of our dashboard is in a few weeks' time where we can provide you with trending data to see how things come back to normalcy and what the new normal is in the first place when things come back to normalcy.
0: What you're trying to do, in my understanding, of it's something like that, is your really trying to create a global measure, in a sense, or a a metric that people can use as a touchstone of comparison, right? Which is, I mean, I know you guys both work for YouGov as an example, and, you know, that these sort of public polls in the old days, governments and agencies and brands would refer to, and you mentioned, for example, like NPS, it would be, you know, the reason why NPS became so popular and successful is it became a benchmark and the CMO could compare NPS for quarter three against quarter two, and you know our brand versus the rivals. But it seems like you're you're on this sort of interesting adventure into using that to help people qualitatively understand a very big macro picture of people's thoughts. In a way, you know, you've got people like Google Trends coming from one angle, which is saying that like, this is like the the subconscious of the, the, the human society and what they're looking for. And you can go onto Google Trends and see you know the the search results for. Office chairs have spiked in the last two weeks because people are buying chairs to work from home, right? Um, but nobody's talking about that. In the same way, you're sort of taking a, a similar kind of approach, which is we're not we're going to sort of look at below the surface a little bit and try and understand beyond the sort of noise what's really going on and how people are thinking and feeling. Importantly, because I notice a lot of your search sorry your research results seem to use a lot of emotive words as well, and then from that help. A lot of people benchmark and understand what's going on not just a brand for a specific campaign is that sort of a more of a a a global plan for you here what was the idea
2: so i think that there's a lot of data in the market when it comes to kind of behavioral data so what are people buying uh what are people browsing and things like that but i think what is lacking in the market right now is really kind of like the why right? Why are people doing this? Why are people doing that? Um, And the only way that you you can actually capture this kind of information is by asking direct questions to people to understand the why. And you have to really kind of like um, send kind of surveys or kind of um, questions out to people to eliminate illuminate um, revolving around basically the why behind people make decisions and all that. And that's where we come in, right? Which is, uh, we are opinions based company. Um, We collect opinions to really kind of like help clients to not only just understand how things have changed, but why things have changed. And if you get down to the level of why things have changed, that will help you to make much better decisions in terms of, business decisions or marketing decisions to really optimize your business performance. And getting down to the why is really kind of like one of our uh, um, value propositions in terms of what we want to kind of like offer into the whole broad data centric kind of industry that we have right now.
1: One thing I just want to call out too is the. I think you were probably referring to the word cloud that showed all the words, like the emotional words, in the dashboard. It's actually interesting to point out that that's actually based on open-ended questions. So those aren't question; those aren't words that we put in the survey. That was a type of question where they get we asked them like, describe in one word. Yeah, that one we say basically describe in one word how you feel right now. These are actually words that they used to, to, um, to describe. So this is actually kind of right from the, the participants themselves, which I thought was really, um, I didn't expect that to be so gloomy. Um, it's, you see a lot of interesting words, like worried, frustrated.
0: Oh, uh, a- Stephen, I learned a word yesterday. My colleague, Vanessa, told me, cyan.
1: Sien. yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> it's the first time I've um, learned that word now. Yeah. That's, that's, the, that's the word of the zeitgeist of the era, right? Yeah. Ho-
1: hopefully, in a few months, we'll see Shiok in, in there as well. I don't know <laughs> if I prena- my Singaporean friends will tell me if I pronounce that right. But um, yeah, so there's the, the word clouds here, again, are based on what we call OEs or open ends. And again, that's really interesting because that's, that's right from the panelists. This is how they're describing how they mm. feel right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Okay, right. We'll, we'll come back to this in a minute. I want to change gears a little bit here. Quick fire round. Let's learn a little bit more about Gerald and Steve. Let's find out a bit about them, the people behind the brand themselves. So I'm going to hit you with some quick questions. I want you to not think too hard about the answer. Just give (laughs) us your first answer. So it's not prepared. They haven't received any questions beforehand. They didn't even know they're doing the quick fire round. But (laughs) I think we all appreciate a little bit of the founder's story, a little bit about the management team as well. All right. So you chaps ready?
1: Let's do it. Let's
0: do it. Okay. Um Gerald, I'm going to pick you first. So, are you ready? Let's go. Yeah. So, in lockdown, what are you doing
2: more of as a person, as a human being? Work. <laughs> You're working, working, harder? working harder. Like, You're the, working the, the lines between work and leisure has blurred so much that Um, You're working like longer hours, but I think the whole idea here is we have a team of people that have joined us during this difficult period and placed trust in us. And I think as the founder of the company, I just want to make sure that they're as comfortable as they are and they're as aligned to our vision as they are um, while kind of like going through the limitations of the whole work from home restrictions and things like that. So yeah, most of the time I've been waking up Working, sleeping at 2 a.m., waking up, working, sleeping at 2 a.m., going on occasional runs, so.
1: G- Gerald never stops work. And this pantry that you're seeing him in has been in his office for the last month. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: No, that's it. I love it. You know, I think mean, this is like really insightful when you get to really look inside the worlds of management teams, founders, entrepreneurs, and it's that a real sense of agility. I mean, this is agile. And we talk a lot about agile in business school and learn about agile, but really at the end of the day, it's doing whatever it takes, you know, just getting the job done. And especially in this environment as well, so much of our our world and our business strategies, and I'm sure you see this with clients, so much of it was built in peacetime, right? You know, with these peacetime mindsets, peacetime strategies. And now it's like, okay, let's see how all these projections play out. Now we're in conflict, right? And that's when you're going to see those companies that were less agile in reality. You know, maybe they had great plans. Maybe they had great... Um, presentations, but it's the mindset of just getting the work done, doing whatever it takes. Okay. Thanks, Gerald. Moving on. Question number two, Stephen, tell me something a little bit unique or quirky about yourself as a manager in the company or as an entrepreneur. And then Gerald will have to verify if this is true or not.
1: (laughs) Something quirky about myself. Or unique.
0: And this is not one of those interview questions that's like, yeah, I'm just a workaholic or, you know, that's my weak point. What is it about you? What would if we worked with you for twenty four hours? What would we learn about you that we didn't know now?
1: If you worked with me for twenty four hours, I'm a naturally a bit of a geek at heart. So I, I and I, my background has been in data science and analytics. And so as much as I'm in a role now where, and I think this is true of Gerald too, where where we have to be kind of leadership, you know, leaders in the company and managers and try and delegate. I really like to just like sometimes just be able to stop doing all the leadership stuff and just open up Excel and start crunching data. So I'm I'm kind of an immense nerd in that way. And yeah, how so, does
0: yeah. that play out with both of you? I also often feel a good team, especially when there's two, is that there's a real complementary skill set. It's almost yin and yang. You know, in yeah. one sense, one is happy to get out and do the leadership stuff, one is happy to do the Excel stuff, or is it quite fluid in your situation? G- right. Gerald's
1: Gerald's very good at Excel as well, but I, th- I think uh, going back to one of the reasons why I joined the company, and I can't remember if I told the story much like when we were on the show the first time, but I was at another company um, we had a mutual ex-boss who connected us and he said, you got to meet Gerald and see what he's working on. I met with him. He showed me the product and I basically quit my job the next week. But the thing that I've noticed with Gerald is like, he, uh, like he, he's able to really go deep. He's got you know, a technical prowess and a creative prowess as well. And so that's, uh, so Gerald's also someone who goes, kind of rolls up his sleeves and kind of writes code and, and and does mock-ups and things like that of our app. So it's pretty incredible. It's great. Love it. And,
2: and I, think, I think one of the main kind of like um, challenges that we face right now is really kind of like going from this whole on-the-ground approach and making difference from a ground up to empowering our team to actually do the same thing for us uh, because we want to build our business to be bigger and we want to make sure that we are not just really doing kind of like on the ground stuff, but really kind of like anchoring the vision of the company. And I think while we have grown from 12 people to 39 people, like between me and Steve, that has been one of the biggest challenges that we have faced so far in terms of how we can actually let go in terms of our passion of doing things in detail and empowering and training our team up to actually achieve the same.
0: How do you do that? Cause that probably, I mean, I'm, now thinking about CEOs, COOs watching, listening to this, you know, whether they're clients, partners, whatever, that they're looking at this and thinking, actually, that's the journey I'm going through. And a lot of it is you learn it first time, right? You learn the hard way. It's difficult to actually teach
1: this, right? I think we've learned more about like just operations and management and and even how to be better leaders over the last two months than even before that. Because one of the things, like we've, we've doubled our team over the last five, six months, and about six of those hires were all hired when we were fully remote and onboarded. And so... We, even before that happened, when we just, when we shut our offices and decided to go all of our, all of our countries to go remote, um, we really had to think about like, how do we make sure people are still productive, but also happy and not burned out. And we made all these, this like week one, we're like, okay, let's do this and this and this. And it resulted in a lot of meetings. Where we're like, okay. We want to make sure people are still connected. So let's have like a daily stand up. And then all of a sudden, after the first week, we were exhausted. And so we had to take a step back and iterate. And um, we, we, we adjusted very quickly. We then came up with new ideas, like let's have a blackout period where you can't have meetings or let's do this, this and this. Um, and over time, it smoothed out and people were kind of like happier and sounded less stressed because in those first weeks you get on a call with someone, you could tell they'd have been on like four hours straight. Oh, calls. yeah. Um, Yeah, definitely. And then with the onboarding, like having to basically write a playbook. Like we were already at a point as a company where we were growing up a bit and had to start building that really solid foundation of human resources and, and support for the team. But we had to rewrite everything once we basically started working from home. And one of the things was with onboarding, when you bring someone in, you want them to have an awesome experience. You want them to learn, immerse with the team and kind of, and eventually start becoming productive. But the most important thing is they have a great experience and everything we had tried to do before that basically just went out the window before COVID-19. So I think we've learned a lot about just running the business, particularly in the last two months.
0: Well, that, you know, on the other side, that's going to make you so much more robust, isn't it? That you, if you can get it right now and adjust during the crisis, when things are on the up across the economy, then it's going to be a lot easier for you because you're already set up for that. Okay, moving on. quick fire round. Gerald, before you started Milieu, what was your worst ever business idea? And it may not have ever come to fruition share with us because as an ideas man you must
2: have had pretty some crazy shower thoughts i'm sure so before i started milieu um i joined yoga as as you guys know and um, i joined yoga primarily to really understand how to build a business up while being paid um to do that Uh, But before I joined Yuga, I actually took a six-month break to actually dabble in a couple of businesses. One of it is online tailoring. So I kind of tried to create an online tailoring site where people can make shirts and all this online. Um, That that went pretty okay because, I mean, there's a need for that. But one of the really kind of like disastrous kind of uh, business ideas I had was... um, I had this really interesting idea of like um, importing power banks from China um, during the stage where, you know, people still charge their phones using power banks and trying to sell it into kind of like the major telco retailers uh, in Thailand because I was in Thailand at that point of time. So I managed to actually do it and I managed to actually get the major big retailers in Thailand to actually put my products into their stores. But that was actually at the tail end of the whole power bank phase, where penetration of power bank was already at 100%, where most people had yeah. power bank. <laughs> it was a good um, idea, just bad timing. <laughs> yeah, so it was a good idea to actually like, bring this product in. It was a success of really getting it into the major stores. But timing is really very important when it comes to building a business up. Here's
0: the thing, Gerald. If I was to sit on the other side of the table as an investor or I was listening to this even in this context as a show host, is that if I hear about a founder who's willing to go to retail stores and hustle, and literally I imagine you were knocking on doors day to day and that could have been a little bit disheartening as well, that's real. That's the hustle that you can't teach or even in many ways can't learn. And I think that that makes quite a compelling characteristic base for any kind of startup is that no matter what product you can give to that team, they can go out and hustle and, you know, push through what is for many people very uncomfortable yeah. and have those conversations. Oh yeah. You add a great product to that and that's fantastic. Right. But yeah. that base cannot be learned from anywhere. And if you don't have it, it doesn't matter how good your product is. If you guys aren't willing to go out and hustle, talk to people, knock on doors, because you're still doing that now, I mean, in a virtual sense as well, then you know you can't grow a business no matter how good the technology
2: is. Right? Yeah, I, th- I think the most important thing is how you approach a hustle, right? And sometimes you approach a hustle as a challenge and a difficulty, but I tend to approach a hustle as, a, as, as, as something that I want to achieve and approach it with optimism and approach it with this sense that I want to do it because I want to kind of like, achieve something. And if you really approach it from this positive mindset, and if you really approach it from this kind of mindset where you do this because you want to achieve something, then the whole dynamic changes, right? From becoming something that's difficult, becoming something that you have to persevere through and you have to suffer hardships through, becoming something that's fun (laughs) and becoming something that you want to do because you want to do it, because the gratification you get from it um, kind of like, um, 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 kind of overweighs the effort that you put into yeah. it. You um, enjoy the challenge. Yeah. And I think Without that, I think that attitude is really important. Uh, when it comes to actually building businesses up, you shouldn't look at challenges as challenges, but you cool. should look at challenges as opportunities.
0: Yeah. Even um, in many sense, challenge is the reward for doing the business, right? Yeah. The fact that you to have these challenges, right? Yeah. You learn the most in
1: dealing with the challenge.
0: Sorry, I I cut you off. I've saved the geek question for you last year. So (laughs) (laughs) this is a research question. Yes. (laughs) Um, This is a Peter Thiel question is that what does most of the world disagree with you on when it comes to research? (laughs) You personally, your, your philosophy of research, market research.
1: Well, I, I'm going to pivot that a little bit because the funny thing about the research industry is that um, it's, very, it's very tribalistic. When you meet people that work at an a online research company, a lot of the time they've only worked at online research companies. You re- work, meet people that worked at like a traditional like uh, focus group interview qual style company. They've only worked there and they live and die by those methods. And that's one thing I've noticed uh, a lot because I've been a buyer. Like m- Most of my career is on the agency side. so I used to work for companies like Publicis and IPG where um, I I bought research. And one of the things I realized is that a good researcher just starts with the brief and decides which methodology um, is going to be the best option. One thing I've noticed is that I've been, you know, as a researcher, you end up in these kind of drinks. You go out for drinks with fellow colleagues and you get in these geeky arguments about what methodology is best. And I think my philosophy is just that that no there's no superior like online research is is very good particularly in this climate because it's scaled it gets you results fast um but at the end of the day a a good researcher is going to look at the research brief and then go from there and that's surprisingly a, a minority opinion in the research community because everyone swears by their own methodology so i'm not necessarily plugging milieu as much as i should right now but um Again, I think, and I think Gerald will take this view too, is that a good researcher just starts with the problem and then figures out where they go from there.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would like to add on to that to that by a good researcher starts on with common sense. And sometimes common sense is really not applicable if you have very entrenched kind of like perceptions when it comes to an industry. And the reason why we started milieu is to really kind of like trash out any kind of previous preconceived notions when it comes to how research is being done and go to the point of what clients really need and work backwards um, in order to really kind of like provide clients with what they need. And I think a lot of uh, companies out there, a lot of researchers out there, um, they are so much entrenched into um, years and years of kind of um, traditional methodologies and how things are done. Uh, what Milu really wants to do is to really kind of like take that away and really go to what you really need when it comes to business decision-making. And that's difficult to do, right? Because some companies are really entrenched in in how they do market research. Um, Some researchers are really entrenched into traditional methodologies of market research. So it's hard to do. But if we reach that point where we can actually... Um, provide a product that actually addresses a company's need without the legacy or baggage of traditional market research methodologies, then we have brought the industry to the next level when it comes to providing the value add that industry needs. And that's really what our immediate focus is on um, um, for the short term as well as the long term. So when it comes to looking at our product as well as what we do, It can come across as unconventional at certain points of time, but the whole idea here is really to not kind of like rely on the baggage of traditional methodologies when it comes to how we develop our business and offerings.
0: I like the fact that you accept it's unconventional and you move in circles with peers as well. Not necessarily the the market research drinks that happen in some sort of mysterious time that's forgotten (laughs) now, but... Like you must be aware of the fact that you're probably not the poster boys of the market research industry then. So in that sense, you are not, you are probably solving client problems, but not necessarily winning a lot of friends in the process because there may be people looking at what you're doing, thinking these guys can do this a lot better and they're much more agile and nimble than us. That's a little bit concerning for us, right? Have you had any signs of that yet, that people look at what you're doing and say, oh, no, not these guys. they just come out of the door doing the pitch before us, right? What have you picked up now? Signals from well, competition?
1: We, I mean, we've taken, we've taken some work away from the bigger, cl- the bigger customers because of the proposition, faster, more agile, more flexible. Um, you know, we, we've had, we, you know, we, we, we run into a lot of these companies from, from time to time. And again, you have kind of friendly encounters. Again, there are these kind of, it's an industry, and they're, they're your peers at the same time as they're your competitors. So, um, uh, and so, yeah, we, we know that we're, we're on their radar because we are, we, we have a great proposition again, faster, faster, better, cheaper, mm. um, with no trade offs on quality. Um, but again, they you know they uh, it takes uh, what we focus on is just convincing clients. like there's there, there are a lot of things that happen in market research that just happen because it's always been done that way. I'll give you one example. Like if you take a survey on like a paid survey, usually you have what are called screeners at the beginning, and they often screen out people on these two conditions. One is, have you do you work in the market research industry? Um, and then usually there'll be an option for the industry that's related to the survey. So if it's a survey about fashion, they'll say, if, do you work in the fashion industry? Do you select either of those options? You get booted out. And usually what happens is that there's like the, the options that will get you screened out and then a none of these. And panelists know, uh, like if they've been on the panel for more than three months, if they've taken a couple of surveys, they know that if they select any of those categories, they'll get screened out and they want their points. And another thing is like, they'll say, have you taken a survey in the last three months? And they'll get screened out. And the, like the, the question you have to ask yourself is why do you do that? So the, the time-based thing, like we screen someone out because of, have they taken a survey in the last three months? is because of what's called a lockout. It's because you don't want to over-survey someone. And that's true if you're service, sending them the same survey over and over again, but if it's a different survey, it doesn't really matter. And the whole idea of like, getting rid of people because they're in a certain sector. Again, there just isn't any evidence to show that they're going, because they work in market research or in that category, they're going to game the system because they could work in lots of different roles, HR, finance. And so these are standard in every survey. And when you ask clients, like people just run it because it's always been done that way. When you really ask clients, like, do they really need to run these these kind of mechanics in a survey? You really get them to think about it. They're like, okay, yeah, maybe not. Mm. But another, another example is like, there are certain questions that we don't support. Uh, One example is something called a grid question. Like you see in our platform, like usually ask like single select or multiple choice questions with, you can choose a few options. A grid question is something that's designed in like desktop software that basically packs like 20 questions into one. And it's very efficient. Like all the survey building tools, like. SurveyMonkey or whatever, support these questions. They're efficient for the researchers, but they're a terrible experience for the panelists. And again, that's something that we we're very vocal about this, we're like, we don't support grids, they're bad for research, they're bad for panelists. Um, So again, these are things where we kind of butt heads with the traditional players. Um, But again, we we, we have friendly conversations with them and we just focus more on on making sure our clients get the best quality data. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, the whole idea here is that when it comes to kind of a major technological innovation, what no matter what industry you're in, whether you're in smartphones and all this, when iPhone come out, came out, I'm sure like Palm and all this were really uncomfortable about it. When you're coming out with better solutions for the market, it's an inevitable that you're going to make people uncomfortable. But I think the driving force behind why you do it is to make the whole industry better as a whole right, by kind of lighting a fire (laughs) Um, and driving also our competitors to kind of like innovate as well. And of course, staying ahead of them because we want to kind of like be successful as well. But we come from this whole position of making the industry better rather than just being ahead of our competition. And that will that will breed discomfort, that will breed some kind of kind of idea from our competitors of whether you know like this company is trying to disrupt and change the normal, but in order to actually address a pain point, you have to do that um It's inevitable that you have to do that, and we will be very persistent in doing that as we continue to innovate um and kind of like bring a product into the market
0: absolutely, those are the qualities you need. And I've really enjoyed this conversation with you and, and catching up with you on a part two. And hopefully the uh, attendees, the audience, if you're listening on the podcast, if you watch this on YouTube as well, the snippets that we'll share across social media, if you enjoyed this conversation with Gerald and Steve. Listen, I hope there's a part three some point in the future. What do you foresee post COVID-19? What do you foresee in terms of where you guys are going to be? Just give us some... I know you're in the business of market research. You're not necessarily in the business of crystal ball gazing. But (laughs) in the future, what do you hope when we speak next, what do you hope that we're
2: talking about? Yes, I'll start first. And I'm sure that Steve has some comments about this. But um, I think increasingly, um, there has been debate and also kind of like discussions um, in media narratives about the new normal, right? So post-COVID-19 will not be pre-COVID-19. Um, and consumer behaviors will change as a result. Organizations will go through digital transformation that um, has been accelerated by COVID-19 in the first place. And what we really want to be at that point of time is in a good position to address the needs where it comes to this new normal. Um, from the point of view of consumers, but also from the point of view of organizations that want a more kind of efficient way to do things related to our space, which is um, market research and consumer opinions gathering. So we are already kind of like looking in our crystal ball. We are not in the business of crystal ball gazing. But every business is in the business of crystal ball gazing to a certain extent. (laughs) And we are really looking at in the crystal ball. And I think the power that we have is we have direct connections with consumers. And we can already ask questions to consumers in terms of how behavior will change, how lifestyle will change and things like that. Um, And we want to make sure that we cater and evolve our solutions to cater to this new normal as well. Um, Be it for consumers, but also for organizations as well.
1: The only thing I would add is um, we're, one thing that's really central to our vision is we've used the best like best of breed methods, uh, kind of uh, merged with like really good tech and really good UI. And through that, um, we have built a platform that's easy to use, but also really cost effective. And one of the things that we like, a really important metric for us is in the future is that we create new buyers. The problem with market research, another problem is that most of the people that are getting good quality or data-driven insights are Fortune 500 companies that can afford it, that either have you know big budgets or the you know in-house data scientists. We're trying to make it so that nonprofits, academics, and even really early-stage startups can afford. To get good quality data back and so we, we've made some headway there but i'm hoping the next time we we can meet that we've we've kind of further um, kind of we're a bit further along in that vision that um you know anyone can get uh, good quality insight regardless of your company size or scale mm.
0: oh yeah we're all into democratizing technology and information yeah. more power to that well Gentlemen, fantastic. Thanks for coming back on Pitch Deck Asia and sharing your journey from A to Thanks B. For having us. On to C. And I've really enjoyed following it as well. I mean, even from like the early, early days when we met and you guys were hustling on the booth, you're still hustling that the spirit <laughs> never dies, right? But that's absolutely what we need right now. So I think, you know, it's not going to be easy, this this COVID-19 situation we're all in, we're all adjusting And it really now, I mean, we were speaking off air about this, you know, the attitude of win by not losing. It's like, you know, just look after your clients, you know, keep doing what you're doing, you know, just maintain the, uh, you know, the momentum and the rhythm within the business. And like on the other side, it's going to be a lot more positive, you know, because I think that, like you say, Gerald, that sort of like digital transformation that's being almost accelerated by COVID eventually will play into the hands. When people's budgets start to pick up, they'll start looking around. And as you say, like a lot of the stuff has been done because it always has been done, not because it was the most effective. Now people outside of, you know, the day-to-day or the traditional way of doing things, people are going to start asking, well, why do we need to do it like this? Why don't we do it like this? And that will then affect, for example, how people assign research budgets or how people manage campaigns and so on. So I think you guys are in a great position. You know, like coming out the other side, just a case now of, you know, keeping your head down and looking after your
2: clients, you know, yeah. looking after the existing ones. Yeah.
0: And I mean,
2: key now. I, I agree fully with you that there's a lot of opportunities when it comes, when um, the COVID-19 situation stabilizes and um, companies go through a different approach of doing things. But at the same point also, our business is, in, is really, really relevant for companies at this point of time where we're still going through COVID-19 kind of difficulties. And what we really want to do now is not really just gear ourselves towards uh, being prepared for um, offering a good business offering when COVID-19 kind of stabilizes, but also helping companies through this difficult period. And as much as possible, um, we are trying to approach companies and we are trying to calibrate our products a bit better. Um, to help companies to actually survive through this period. And I think beyond just that whole post-COVID-19 world, um, helping companies to manage the COVID-19 world at this point of time is also really, really important to us. Um, And I just really want to kind of like emphasize on that. Yeah,
0: agreed. Even that data that we shared earlier, we will put that in the show notes as well. For example, like the, the canvas that you shared that's on the public side of the paywall, You know, that whole point of helping people qualitatively understand where we are now in terms of changing consumer behavior or people's attitudes, you know, that's across the board from government agencies to brands.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that is a useful deep dive for people to kind of start understanding what exactly is going on. Right. You know, there's a lot of chatter in the news, but let's sort of quantify this a little bit and understand what kind of attitudes are emerging and changing.
1: Yeah,
2: in the age of media narratives entrench it into actual data. And yeah. that's what we really want to do. Yeah,
0: yeah that stuff needs to be out in the, the, the wider media as well. You know, almost like your regular update that you can publish on consumer or like, you know, population trends, people, what they're saying
2: as well. That's Steve is in of the, charge of PR, so... Yeah. I'll let him Absolutely. Just- <laughs> one,
1: one of my That's hats. It. Yeah. Yeah. So we are working on some, aside from doing just giving the data and making it freely available, we'll probably be doing some commentary on it. So some of our analysts will write some, some kind of biweekly commentary as well. So yeah, that, yeah. you can watch out for that.
0: Or even a podcast. How about that? That would yeah, be fantastic yeah. for commentary, especially if it had you guys on it. You know, I think a yeah. lot of people would like to dial in and hear that, but what does it mean? What's going on? Yeah, sure. Help us analyze it. Right. Because no, nobody's really taking idea. that kind of that, that position, are they? Nobody's really saying, this is what's happening. This is what it means. Like We've got the data to help understand it, right?
2: Yeah. Let me just I'll, get a better hit set in the next slide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, step by step. <laughs> Gerald,
0: Steve, great to have you back on. Thanks for sharing with us today your update on the journey. Um, long may it continue. There's a lot to do right now, as you say. There's a lot that people can kind of get in touch with you about. Um, You know, like you say, just help navigate through where we are right now, and not just think about post COVID nineteen as well, because you know that may never happen. We never know, do we? So, um, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? How would you prefer to people to reach out?
1: Um, So, through our website, there's a form you can fill out. So, m i l i dot e u milu. Um, You can also catch us on LinkedIn. So if you go into LinkedIn and look for Gerald or myself, Gerald Ong or Stephen Tracy, you can find us. Yeah, those are probably some of the best ways.
0: What's the best sort of approach emails or like messages? Because sometimes people want to kind of learn more. People want to, you know, connect with you somehow, but they don't necessarily know the interface that they should be doing this in the sense that, you know, Oh, I'm interested in research. I'm interested in your research. Is there any way that you can help people understand what they should really be
2: saying I to think, you? I think the best way to actually um, to reach out to us to just is to just say that you're interested to have a conversation with us. And we are open to a wide range of conversations, whether it's collaborations, whether it's um, work that we can do for you in terms of our services and things like that. So... Um, as long as you tell us that you're interested to talk to us, yeah, we'll be interested to talk to you. So, Fantastic. Yeah, I think that's the most important thing.
0: Great starting point. Hey everybody, that was Gerald Ang and Steve Tracy from Milieu sharing the insights on their journey. They've given you info on how you can get in touch with them. Looking forward to an update in the future as well. If you enjoyed Pitch Deck Asia, please go and check us out on pitchdeck.asia, the website which will show you the latest shows and the live shows coming up here as well, how you can get involved, how you can check out some of the stories coming up on Pitch Deck Asia from around Asia, all startups of different kinds of shapes, sizes, and stages as well. These are all journeys and keep those journeys going. Steve and Gerald, thanks a lot for today. Thank
1: you so much for having us. Thank you so much.
0: That was Pitch Deck Asia. My name is Graham Brown. Pitch Deck Asia is a platform to give startups in Asia a voice. We give them a show to help them tell their story. And if you love these startup stories and like hearing more about the journeys of the founders. Go and check out our SoundCloud channel, which is available at pitchdeck.asia slash SoundCloud. That's pitchdeck.asia slash SoundCloud. Head along to the channel, subscribe, follow us, and feel free to leave a comment or a rating on our channel as well. We'd love to hear your feedback.